0: Want to uh, extend the peace of Christ to you on this Good Friday. Uh, my name is Jonathan Alston, pastoral intern here. If uh, we haven't had a chance to meet, Thomas Merton was a poet and uh, spent most of his life as a monk at a monastery in Kentucky. And one evening, while he and his fellow monks were having their dinner, the monastery barn caught on fire and it drew them away from their meal to go out and watch as it burned to the ground. And the event had such a terrible beauty to Merton that it inspired a poem, and that poem's printed in the back of your bulletin. I hope you have a chance to read it at some point. Um, what I find fascinating about it is the way that Merton processes this disaster of the barn burning down. On the one hand, he is mesmerized by the huge and beautiful flames like you might be when you look at a big fire he feels the heat of those flames, and at the same time, he can't stop thinking about the silence that the barn held for most of his, its existence, how, how humble and quiet it was in comparison to the terrible beauty of its death and burning, and it's that kind of juxtaposition that takes up most of the poem that he wrote about it. Um, and what, what I find most profound about the way he processes this barn burning down is that he doesn't see himself as a bystander. He, uh, he's not just a casual observer. The barn is, as he put it, laved in the flame as in a sacrament. And like a sacrament, it draws him in and it changes him from an observer of this disaster into a participant. He was a Cister- Cistercian monk, which means he had taken a vow of silence as a means of sanctification. And he sees this, the silence of the barn as a picture of his own vows. And he sees the, the terrible heat and burning as a picture of Judgment Day, the day in which his sanctification would be complete and God's own fire would burn away his sin completely. So when Merton is looking at this barn burning down, he's really looking at himself. The barn is a mirror image of his soul. And we just read a big chunk of the first two chapters of the prophecy of Joel in the Old Testament. And um, much of that is kind of talking about this, uh, this terrible locust plague that descended on Judah and destroyed all the crops. And so Joel's prophecy is actually a lot like Merton's poem in that he too is processing disaster. And what we see as Joel processes this disaster is his understanding that history or the things going on around us is always going to be a mirror to our hearts. So for Joel, he sees the locusts as a direct reflection of Judah's spiritual disease. And he wants them to look at this locust plague kind of like Merton is looking at the barn as God revealing something to them through this outward sign. And he says that the proper response to that revelation is to mourn to lament. He calls for nationwide grief and mourning, especially over the fact that the locusts are a reflection of the sin in their hearts and not the destruction of it. So for Joel, that means that more disaster is on its way. Because history can can only reciprocate or reflect the sin that's in our own hearts, Joel sees the locusts as just the first stages of an even greater disaster that's going to be coming in the future a military invasion that's abundantly worse than the locusts maybe to put this in perspective how would you feel if someone with prophetic authority told us that the pandemic was really just a taste of something worse that was going to come to us and to our children in the future I kind of felt like I had heard something like that recently when one expert suggested that we might be wearing masks for the next 10 to 20 years. And if you're like me, you just kind of want to dismiss that automatically because I'm so ready for things to get back to normal. But Joel actually keeps me from dismissing it out of hand because he's saying something fairly similar to the people of Judah about how the locusts are not just going to go away. This disaster is not just going to go away. In fact, it's going to get worse because history is always going to reflect this bent in our hearts. And if we saw the pandemic as a metaphor for our own spiritual disease, and if we believe that our future history is going to continue to reflect that bent, then it's hard to see the pandemic as something that's just going to go away and let us get back to normal. And even if it does, there's going to be something else that takes its place because there's always going to be something to reflect the brokenness of our hearts. And like Joel instructed Judah, I think the proper response to that kind of message is grief and mourning. Mourning over the, our sin and the brokenness of the world. And I think Joel's words in chapter 1 are an appropriate response of grief when he says, Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This kind of systematic destruction of everything that we love. In Joel's terms, maybe 2020 feels like the year that the locust has eaten. And if I start to listen to his prophetic voice, I might start to believe that the next 10 to 20 years are going to be eaten up by locusts as well. And if that leads you to grief like it does me... Joel tells us where to take that grief in chapter 2, and verse 12. Yet even now, it begins. Right now, in the midst of this disaster, right now, in the midst of this pandemic, right now, when every indication is that more chaos is on its way, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So where do we take our grief? We take it to the one whose very nature is to show mercy. Mercy. And when we tear our hearts in grief, Joel tells us that God's knee-jerk reaction is to show pity on our broken hearts and to pour out blessing, to show pity on our spiritual poverty and to bless us. And God's pity creates this beautiful transformation in the book of Joel. His tone moves from one of despair and grief to one of hope. His images change from God taking everything away to God giving everything back and even adding to it. Pouring out his abundance to the point that it feels like the locust thing didn't even ever happen. Almost like it contributed to prosperity rather than stealing it away. I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten, God says in chapter 3. I'll give back what was lost. Joel's most famous prophecy is probably that God would one day pour out his spirit on all the people on men and women, young and old, rich and poor. He would take pity on their spiritual poverty and on their broken hearts, and he would make them spiritually wealthy beyond their ability to imagine. And remember, because history will always reflect the state of our hearts, Joel prophesies that when our hearts are redeemed, the earth itself will bear abundant fruit and the mountains will drip with sweet wine. So maybe notice what's happening here in in Joel's prophecy. He's got two parallel visions of the future. On the one hand, history will always reflect our sinful hearts, and so future judgment and devastation are certain. And then on the other hand, our grief over our sin will always result in God's pity and future blessing. So how can both of those visions of the future be true? And I think it can only be that For those whose hearts are broken in repentance, the judgment that comes on sin is in fact a doorway into blessing. The effect of judgment on God's people will not be devastation and death, but life and abundance. One act of judgment, one act of judgment on sin, for some it's a sign of death, but it's a sign of salvation for those whose hearts are torn. And this lands us squarely in this day, Good Friday, and in this hour when Christ hung on the cross, because it is the full and final sign of both judgment and blessing. The cross is the ultimate sign of judgment for those who look at it and fail to see Christ's suffering for them whose hearts aren't broken at his suffering love for them. And if you can't see yourself in the cross and grieve over it, you also can't see God's pity in the midst of judgment. And the disaster that will certainly fall on you will be without blessing and without saving. But for those who truly see the cross, who see it like Merton saw the barn burning down or like Joel saw the locusts, who see it not as bystanders, but as participants. They find at the cross that the disease of their own hearts is on full and awful display. They see their own suffering, and the suffering of all humanity culminating together onto this humble Savior. And these are the ones who rend their hearts at the cross. And it's in the very breaking of their hearts that they also come to see the cross as the source of infinite mercy and pity. And they see the cross as the thing that turns every form of disaster that falls on us into a work of God's saving and blessing. It's our spiritual sight or blindness at the cross that makes all the difference in how we see everything else. Whether we experience each pain that comes into our life as that which takes life away or as that which gives it. So today I would invite you to look deeply and think deeply on the cross. And maybe the best entrance into that contemplation of looking into the, at the cross as maybe a poet or a prophet would is to consider your own suffering and pain. Are you lonely today at all? Feel your loneliness through the heart of Jesus, who was left alone by his friends at his worst hour. Are you afraid? Taste your fear through the fear and trepidation of Christ, who prayed that this cup would pass from him, but on the cross he is draining it to the dregs. Are you exhausted? Are you weary? Limp within the weariness of Christ as he bears the sins of the whole world. The taunts of the people that he loves. Exhaustion, thirst. We can taste the suffering of Christ and our own suffering because of the pain that you feel here and now is truly, really, actually present in Christ as he suffers on the cross. Because he suffers with you on his cross and for you. And it's his suffering that most moves the Father to pity and mercy and to pouring out his spirit on those who are united to Jesus who suffered for them. Maybe the last year has felt like it was eaten up by locusts. Maybe some of you have been through so much pain and loss that last year couldn't shake a stick at it. And what we can say this Good Friday is that through the cross, for those of us who see ourselves in it and whose hearts break over it, God restores to us the years the locust has eaten. And he does it through the redeeming suffering of Jesus. So hear these words today. There is nothing... That you have lost or will lose in pain, in sin, or in suffering, that he is not going to give back to you. Nothing. He gives it all back and even adds to it. He gives it all back with a renewed heart and with creation itself unable to contain its joy at the redemption of the sons and daughters of God. To paraphrase Frederick Buechner, what we have lost is nothing compared to what we will find. It is nothing compared to what we will find. He gives it all back because every pain that we experience, every single molecule of it has been taken up into the suffering of Christ. And by his wounds, he heals ours. Amen.